the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Author Joyce Carol Oates will join us today to talk about her new novel, Babysitter, which draws on our memories of Detroit and its suburbs in the 1970s and dissects many of the social and cultural tensions that defined us then and cast forward into today. Then we're going to discuss why plans to continue cleaning up the Detroit River have been stalled recently and may be threatened. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you're of a certain age in this community, you remember pretty well the horror and emotional displacement that was inspired by the Oakland County child killer. In the late 1970s, over the span of about a year, Four young children were killed in Detroit's Tony suburbs. They were killed while they were just doing ordinary kid things. It was a really shocking series of events, and it was a really tense time in this community. The murders disrupted more than just people's sense of safety and the safety of their children. They also shone a brighter light on the questions of privilege and division the social framework, and yes, the racism that defines so much of our lives here in Southeast Michigan. And of course, those murders have been a mystery in our community for nearly five decades now. We still really don't know who was responsible. The author Joyce Carol Oates was once part of our community, a Detroiter who, according to her biographer, found her literary voice among the city's profound contrasts and deep inequalities. And she would, of course, go on to a stellar literary career and pen more than 50 novels. In her most recent book, she returns to Detroit, in a way, writing about this 1970s killer in Oakland County. Her new book, Babysitter, captures the tense, tense, days in that time and also interrogates the thoughts and social infrastructure of Detroit, the city, and Metro Detroit, our suburbs, a tension that still informs the stories that we all create. I'm really pleased to welcome Joyce Carol Oates to, to Detroit today to talk about this book and so much more with us. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So, as I said, uh, you were once a Detroiter. You taught in Detroit and lived in Michigan. I'm really curious, after reading the book, uh, about the decision essentially to come back here to write about Detroit and its suburbs. What moved you to this subject at this point? Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that question. Well, first of all, I think of Detroit and the suburbs and then I- my time living there is, is such an exciting time. I was really, and to some extent I still am, quite enthralled with Detroit. You can see in my novel, sort of in the background, there are all these roadways and expressways and streets and, and avenues and boulevards like Woodward Avenue. Basically, I can shut my eyes and just be be driving all around the city and out to Bluefield Hills and you know down to the Renaissance Center. So I think like many writers, I'm somewhat in love with my subject and with the setting. So for me, the the setting of Detroit is very much a a character in the novel. And it's very natural for me to write about that that time in my life post the so-called Detroit riot of Mm -hmm. July 1967. In in that interim until um, 
I, I, until I moved to Princeton, I was just very, very much involved with Detroit and with my friends who lived in the suburbs, uh, not only Bloomfield Hills and Birmingham and Franklin, but also Gross Point. I had a number, let's say 15 really good women friends. And during the time of the, the terror of babysitter, which is approximately, as you said, a year, uh, I saw them very often and they were so frightened for their children Many of them had children who were in that age group that Babysitter had been uh, focusing on. Mm. So, so uh, what I think is really critical about this book is, of course, as you say, it's set during this year-long or 13-month period when uh, there is somebody um, randomly, it seems, killing children in Oakland County. But of course, uh, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a community that has, as I said in the open, these stark contrasts and and deep inequalities. And in the book, uh, you really bring those to life around the characters. And uh, the characters are, of course, shaped by those contrasts. I I wonder what you can tell us about what you learned about those kinds of things, those kinds of issues here in the city of Detroit. It seems like the time that you were here uh, was really instructive for you about those kinds of inequalities and differences. Yes, Detroit was the first large city that I had ever lived in in my life. I'm from a rural area in western New York State. So the impressions are remain so very strong with me. I was a young woman and a young wife and a young instructor at the University of Detroit. So life came very quickly at me and I really absorbed it a good deal. A babysitter as a novel is, is really like a movie. I, I wanted to write an experimental novel that, ex, that unfolds in the historic present so that we are in that time moving forward, sort of trapped as if in a movie and moving forward in that time. But since then, in the, in the decades following, we know much more about Babysitter and we know more about, much more about the so-called Detroit riot. So living at the time, it was seeming like a chaotic and very random and, and terrifying time. It was not known who Babysitter was. Some people inclined toward racial prejudice thought it, that it would be a, a, black, a black man. Mm-hmm. Other people had, you know, everybody had some sort of paranoid idea. Now, subsequently, today, we know much more about it. So, but I wanted, I wanted to write a novel that set at that time of anxiety and stress and unfolding drama. We know now that probably Babysitter was, uh, was a white man, and he probably was living actually in, in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. He was of that, you know, of that time and place. And today in 2022, we talk very easily about, we use words like enabling, which didn't really exist at that time. Mm-hmm. We tended to think of a serial killer as an isolated person, uh, a, a psychopath, obviously. But today we think of um, a serial killer or a serial harasser of women as somebody who may well be enabled by people around him if he's powerful, if he has influence and money like Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, we know now that they, they exist only because people are protecting them. So too, I think, with the, pedo, the pedophilia which is investigated in, in Babysitter, that there was a little community, you know, sort of un, uh, ununified, uh, a bond between people gathered or clustered in the sort of dark netherworld of Detroit. And they were probably aware of who Babysitter was, mm. and, but they were probably just looking the other way and, you know, protecting him by just not, not wanting to acknowledge it. So that's one of the themes of the novel, how evil is enabled by people around it who are not necessarily evil themselves. Wow. So so let's talk about the protagonist in 
babysitter, Hannah Jarrett, uh, a white woman in her late 30s living in the Detroit suburbs. Um, you know, after after reading, I'm I'm not sure if I'm supposed to empathize with her, if I'm supposed to despise her, if I'm supposed to maybe feel a combination of both. I mean, she's a complicated character, but she is also defined by place uh, and the social structure of that place and that being the Detroit suburbs. Yes, that's true. I, w- I had hoped that Arita would actually identify with her. Hmm. And, you know, though we we don't always approve of things that we do ourselves, we're sort of trapped in this being. It's I think of life as being like a movie. We're in a movie. We don't know the script. We don't control the script. We're trying to control it, but we don't really. And life is unfolding around us, and we find ourselves doing things. We're in roles. She finds herself a wife and a mother, and she's in that role. And as I use the expression in the novel several times, playing out the scene. She's sort of trapped in the scene, like with her husband, and she's going to play out the scene to see where it goes. I feel that many of us have, and I include myself, a kind of astonished passivity in the face of life that comes rushing at us. And the more we live, the more we are broken, you know, on the wheel of life. We lose people whom we love. Things happen to us in many ways. So with Hannah, she's somewhat passive, and she may be punishing herself by being involved with this man. But at a climatic point in the novel, she she chooses to save her children from him. She sort of grabs her son and, and, and pulls him away. And that's kind of the turning point morally for her. But until that minute, she didn't really know that she was going to do that. Hmm. And I think that's true of many people, that we can somehow be courageous and heroic if we have to be. But up until that hour, we don't really know what we're capable of. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, race plays uh, not just a background role in, this, in the telling of this story. Frequently, it just kind of is right in in the front uh, assumptions that people make or the way people react to things in the novel is tinged with racism i mean and sometimes not in a in a small way talk about the i guess the reflection that that now offers us given the things that happen right now and the things that we're talking about right now in so in some ways some of these things are not as distant as they might seem 50 years later. Yes, I think what has changed is that the the, um, the spectacle of racism is much more visible today because of social media like Twitter and uh, cell phone videos, which people are, are using to record police misconduct and police brutality all around the country. Now, we, we some of us may have known or suspected that this was going on but we didn't have the visual evidence. And the, the mainstream media, like the New York Times, for instance, or the Detroit newspapers, uh, they, they didn't really focus on that at all. You know, all that was kind of hidden. So at the, the time of July 1967, the, uh, uh, social, the civic disturbance, which is known as the Detroit riot, I think many white residents, including myself and my husband, we didn't really know the the racial background of how the Detroit police were harassing black people for you know decades, and just the way the black neighborhood had been cut up and and deracinated and destroyed by the uh, you know building the big expressways and cutting through their neighborhoods, just a sort of uh, systemic racism that was all around us. We didn't really know about it, but in two thousand. Uh, 22, much, much is exposed, which I, which I think is good. The racism may never go away, but it's been exposed to the daylight. So it's, I think it has a little less power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have said before that during your time here in Detroit, and, and as you made clear that you, you lived uh, in the Seven Mile and Woodward area and moved to, to Green Acres at some point, that the, the segregation 
and the racial tension that was clear in those in those times in those places was such an eye opener to you and and I wonder how much that has influenced since then the writing that that, that you've done that that moment where you you see that that things aren't as as um, as we might want them to be or as we might initially see them to be that there's something really quite devious going on underneath well i think all that is true and i think also that things are unexamined when we're living through them hmm. that um as i said when i was a young woman at the time it, it really in my 20s and i didn't have access to the kind of things we we could just look up on google now you know and read about history mm-hmm. but when we're living through it uh, my husband and I were in Detroit at the time of the so-called riot, and we lived at at that time we lived at near Seven Mile in Livernois. We had moved to the area called Sherwood Forest at sure. that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was actually integrated in a you know in a modest way, and so was Green Acres. It was in, integrated, you know. It was the houses are very nicely kept and beautiful lawns. It was nothing like an inner city, you know. A ghetto of any kind, but uh, we lived there. I think we lived very happily, and it was thrilling to live in Detroit in those years. The Detroit Institute of Arts is so wonderful, and just driving around and and Palmer Woods and bicycling, I have all these wonderful memories. But of course, there's another world, a kind of subterranean world, of people who don't have that privilege, and uh, that just sort of exploded. Mm-hmm. So my novel is, is takes place ten years later, but it's still the kind of smoldering remains of this uh, civic civic disturbance. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, author Joyce Carol Oates, award-winning author of uh, many fiction and nonfiction books. She recently wrote Babysitter, a book that is set here in Southeast Michigan uh, during the time of the Oakland co- uh, County child killings. Uh, really memorable moments here in uh, in Metro Detroit in the late 1970s. I want to hear from you uh, during the conversation as well, our listeners. What did you make of 1970s Detroit and Metro Detroit? Do you remember this time? Do you remember the Oakland County child killer being in the news? Uh, also, give us a sense of how you feel the tensions that played out during that time uh, still are living with us now in uh, Detroit and in Metro Detroit. Of course, also, uh, if you just have questions for Joyce Carol Oates, it's a real privilege for us to have her with us today. Uh, give us a call and uh, ask those as well. As, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, I want to talk before we get to our listeners about some parts of the book, Joyce, where you write from the perspective of the dead. Uh, and it's a, a really chilling part of the novel. I, I wonder what you, what you were thinking when you decided to, to do that. Uh, why is that an important part of this story? Well, thank you for that question. Obviously, when people have died, they pass away from us and they become mute. And so in writing a novel, which is a work of imagination, you know, rather than journalism, I wanted the dead children to have a voice mm-hmm. so that they had a presence in the novel and were not simply victims or statistics or forgotten. So that that was the motive there. I, I often write novels in which there are many voices. There may be a protagonist, and there may be uh, you know ancillary characters. But sometimes I write about people who are very peripheral, who might be overlooked, and I want to give them a voice because there are two or three people. It's about a whole chorus. It is like a chorus of people. Hmm. Hmm. And and those children's voices, which uh, of course we hear in this community through. Their families, many of whom, um, you know, are still trying to to get answers or clarity. Uh, 
uh, about about what happened and and why. It, it strikes me though that these children's voices in the book are quite quite different. Um, they're 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 more embodied in some ways, right? I mean, they're they're more explicitly about their their perspective and their experience. Yes, well, they're elevated voices. They're, they're rather more poetic. If we think of death as some sort of transfiguration or some sort of spiritual experience, the, the children in the novel are not specific children. Mm-hmm. They don't have specific parents and they don't live in a particular house. So I hope if anyone's listening you, that you all understand this is a novel and that these are not about specific people. Sure. They're about just, yeah. It's like the voices of the dead, if you could hear them, you know, like the wind is blowing and it's late at night and you sort of hear this kind of eerie sound that could be the voices of the dead trying to speak to us and trying to make us listen because during the daytime we're not listening. Uh, I'm very drawn to mysteries in American culture or history that have not been solved. So the Oakland County child killer, uh, the killings, have really not been solved. There right. never was a trial, never was an arrest. So I like to focus and explore and do research into unsolved mysteries. And then I have a kind of hypothesis of what I think probably happened. Hmm. And my my solutions are never Im, implausible or fantastic. They're, I think they're quite probable and plausible given the evidence, and also what I could learn subsequently, because as decades have gone by, there's much more about the babysitter. When we lived through it in 1977, we didn't have a clue who this person was, but now we have many, many ideas. So my idea in the novel is my uh, very considered um, thought of who it was and what happened to him. Hmm. Uh, We have a... Uh, Twitter response from Ed who says summer of 77 I was 10 my parents were divorcing and I was on lockdown because of the child killing tough year in my childhood that has stuck with me the children of 2020 will have that same lockdown memory that's an interesting parallel between uh, that time in 1977 and the time that we just lived through uh, with the pandemic Um, let's go to Frank in Livonia on the phones Frank welcome to the show Hey, good morning, Stephen. I uh, really appreciate uh, the writing of uh, Ms. Oates. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, about racism and, you know, and about this time. And I grew up in the suburbs. I'm a white person. And the visceral reaction that uh, that white people had, you know, after the uprising of, of 67 and, and the, you know, all these problems. And I started thinking just recently about why... You know, why is this such a, a, a intractable problem? And, and I just think that racism, something is telling me that it goes much deeper into the Caucasian brain. It goes to the place where there's fight and flight hmm. and procreation is there, you know, that drive to keep the DNA alive of your particular tribe or clan or race. And I, I'm just starting to think that there's something much more complex and um, uh, uh, intricate into this into our brains because you know you know if you as I've lived here in Detroit and I worked for smart as a bus driver I you know my sales territory was the west side of Detroit Mm. did my student teaching at Pershing and as I you know I learned you know just like a firefighter does not fear fire because they're trained. They understand yeah, it. They yeah. know what to do. Frank, so, Frank I don't want to cut uh, you off, but we're going to lose our time with uh, with Mr. Ms. Oates. I, I think that's a great point. Um, in, in, in the book, those stark reactions to race are, are all over the place. I mean, they just kind of happen. And they're, they're kind of the fabric of Hannah Jarrett's life uh, with her husband, with uh, with the person that she's uh, involved with. It, it's everywhere, Joyce. Well, she also is aware of it, but she can't, she doesn't have enough strength or conviction to say anything. Mm. You know, she, she sort of pre- helps to precipitate the death of a totally innocent black man because she just doesn't have the uh, moral strength to speak out. Right. Right. 
Okay, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, it was really wonderful to have you here with us on the show, and congratulations, of course, on the, the new book, Babysitter. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I love Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, when we come back, we are going to talk uh, about the Detroit River and the ongoing efforts to clean it up. They're stalled right now because of a couple of bureaucratic snafus. We're going to talk about what that means for the cleanup, both in the short term and the long term. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Can't think of Detroit without thinking of, of course, the river, which was not only instrumental to our growth as an industrial center, but was the very reason that the city was founded way back in 1701. For decades, though, of course, untreated waste from that industry, from urban development, storm runoff, and other factors really degraded the river's quality. According to the EPA, these pollution sources have contributed to the high levels of bacteria, all kinds of other contaminants that cause our river to be classified uh, as an area of concern back in uh, 1987. This year, the Biden administration announced it would designate a billion dollars specifically for Great Lakes region sites, which should include the Detroit River. But since that time, the EPA has indicated it's more likely to continue its approach of requiring a non-federal partner to pay approximately 35 percent for this type of cleanup. Meanwhile, Michigan's Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, Eagle, has budgeted $69 million for toxic site remediation, but no specific funding for the Detroit River cleanup, which leaves the river in a little bit of a lurch, a balance, I guess, uh, caught between some bureaucratic issues. The ideal party to pay the cost of the cleanup is the responsible party, of course. Uh, Industry and the other pollutants should be part of the solution to cleaning up the Detroit River. But uh, a lot of those parties don't exist any longer. And of course, it's always really hard to get uh, corporate citizens to own up to and then to help pay for the damage caused by their activities. That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. We want to talk about the Detroit River, talk about its cleanup, its potential cleanup, and where the money might come from to continue it, to help us unpack all of those questions and more. We're joined by Nick Schreck. He is the Associate Dean of Experiential Education and an Associate Professor at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's first talk about why the river is so dirty. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that it is still beset by a lot of things that that happened in the past. But but tell us how we how we got to this point uh, where it needs such a cleanup. Right. So prior to the 1970s, when we saw an adoption of things like the Clean Water Act that reduce pollution into our waters like the Detroit River from factories and other other point sources or, or pipes that were discharging pollution. Um, a lot of just pollution accumulated over many, many years of industrial activity. I mean, as you mentioned in the opening, uh, the Detroit River was really a, a key engine for industrial growth, not just in Michigan, but you know for the whole country. And a lot of that heavy industry uh, was discharging pollution in an unregulated way into the river. And over time, that pollution accumulated in what we call sediments, which is basically, if you think of, of soil on the bottom of, of the river, included in that, in that soil are these contaminants, things like PCBs and mercury and other you know, toxic chemicals. And so there's a law called the Great Lakes Legacy Act, which is intended to clean up these contaminated sediments all around the Great Lakes in these areas of concern. And I think it's helpful to think of an area of concern sort of like 
a Superfund site, like we have, we've talked about before, these you know really contaminated areas on land. Well, areas of concern are those contaminated contaminated areas in the water. And so really, it was just, again, you know, decades upon decades of unregulated pollution of really harmful chemicals that have now settled down in the, the sediment or the soil at the bottom of the river. And so to deal with that, you have to remove it, right? It's not going to go away. Some of these chemicals are very persistent. They'll stay in the environment for a really long time. And they lead to things like fish consumption advisories, harm to fish and wildlife, potential harm to drinking water, all of that. So anyways, it's, it's a long history leading up to, to where we are currently. And now we have to figure out how to pay to dredge, you know, dig up that contaminated sediment make sure that it's treated and disposed of properly, and that's expensive. Hmm. At the same time, the river's cleaner now than it was in the distant past. Is that not right? Uh, I've always, I I guess, had had the understanding that we had made some progress uh, in cleaning it up. Oh, absolutely. So the the Detroit River is much healthier now, um, you know, really than it's been at any time since the industrial era because of these regulations that we have, and also a lot of projects aimed at rehabilitating the river. Um, you know, many listeners will be familiar, of course, with the Detroit Riverwalk, right, and all that work to get rid of uh, contamination along the shoreline and to limit pollution from getting into the river. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of work over the years. And yes, we are, we are seeing improved water quality, but there are still things that we call beneficial use impairments, um, and, and that means that there are problems still with the river. And so including here in the Detroit River, we have concerns about fish and wildlife consumption, um, you know, eating fish that we pull out of the river, beach closings, um, just sometimes the aesthetics, you'll see discoloration of the water, especially after a big rain event when we have some of that stormwater runoff. So there's still issues. I mean, you're absolutely right. We're now regulating, controlling, and we've greatly reduced the amount of new pollution into the river. But an ongoing concern is this problem, these legacy contaminants things that are there from yeah, companies that no longer exist. You know, some of this pollution was a part of the war effort in World War II with the arsenal of democracy. You know, a lot of that's leftover pollution that, again, if we don't go in there and clean it up over time, it will be consumed by fish or consumed by plant life and make its way up through the flood and continue to be harmful for us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Biden's infrastructure bill was potentially going to be used to clean up the Detroit River. That was one of the things, at least, that uh, that we we talked about. Um, mm-hmm. Nick, tell us what happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's there's a lot of money in this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, you know, one billion dollars set aside to help clean up um, this this type of contamination across the country. And so there's a question of you know how much of that money can we use towards the Detroit River cleanup? You know, it's estimated that we're looking at about a hundred million dollars that still needs to be invested in cleaning up the sediment. But the issue is, even though there's some federal money available, there needs to be a local match. So there, there needs to be a 35% local match, meaning that either a municipality or the state of Michigan has to contribute that money. So, you know, you're talking $30, $40 million that will need to be, that will have to come from a, a local match. And so that's been a stumbling block, you know, not being able to come up with that money. So, you know, one question is whether the Detroit River, this can be something that's added to, you know, the real top of priority for Michigan and our environment Great Lakes and Energy Department to, you know, help provide that local match, or if it can come from some other source within the state. But that that is a, a key stumbling point. You know, you can't just use all the federal money without any strings attached. There has to be that local match. And so that's been, you know, an impediment. And again, these are very expensive projects. You know, we're talking $100 million, right? That's a lot of money. And so to come up with that local is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, I want to add another voice to the conversation here, uh, Gary Wilson is a journalist and contributor to Planet Detroit. He's Chicago-based, uh, but has been reporting on Great Lakes issues for public media since 2011. He has a recent uh, piece in Planet Detroit about uh, Detroit River's uh, cleanup being a pretty low priority uh, in the billion-dollar Great Lakes windfall that came from uh, the recent legislation. Gary, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to quickly get your take on what's going on here. Uh, this was supposed to be one of the things that we were going to look forward to. And we're now in a, I, I mean, at best, probably a period of some stasis, I guess, while we wait to, to, to figure it out. But, but talk about how we, 
how we fell into this kind of strange betwixt in between space here. Yeah, sure. The uh, the the EPA, by the way, estimates uh, that assuming everything goes right and and there's funding available, which are the big ifs, uh, that the the sediment, the contaminated sediment, could be uh, removed from the Detroit River by 2030, and I would add ish onto that because there are there are a number of variables, uh, things that could go wrong during the process, and uh, some uh, you know knowledgeable observers. I really think that that 2030 date is uh, uh, is, is optimistic, uh, but the the funding issue actually goes back uh, uh, to uh, 2010, uh, when in, under President Obama the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative uh, became law, and that pr really provided the missing link to cleaning up uh, the Detroit River and these other uh, areas of concern sites uh, that Nick mentioned. Uh, and, and over the over the years since 2010, uh, the, the Great Lakes region writ large has been allocated uh, approaching 3.8 billion dollars uh, for all kinds of work, not just sediment removal, but all kinds of habitat restoration, uh, a myriad of, uh, of potential projects. They're in the thousands. Uh, but the thing that jumps off the page for me as I've been recovering uh, this over time is that. Uh, since 2010 and after 3.8 billion dollars very little of that money has been allocated to the the sediment removal in the detroit river and uh, that jumped off the page uh, to me and uh, i i asked people knowledgeable people i asked people in the epa uh what's kind of what gives here is the detroit river a low priority why is it a low priority oh no it's not a low priority i'm told but it's the Detroit River is very complicated, and uh, the reason why I've been covering it so intensely is there there always seems to be an excuse why why the Detroit River's uh, issues can't make it to the top of their priority list. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Gary, talk about what else I guess is a priority. I mean, w w what is it that is in line ahead of our river here? Well, there are, uh, as Nick probably mentioned, a number of other sites. So you've got all these 20-some locations now, 20 high 20s, competing for funding. So, so that's an issue. But the the cleanup of the of the sediment is complicated. It takes time, and for the public, if you look at the, say the Detroit River now, and if you looked at it after all this sediment had been removed, it would probably look the same. So there's been a lot of emphasis on projects like habitat restoration, good projects, worthy projects, uh, and but they're also highly visible uh, and they're easier to to gain success and uh, to keep funding flowing for uh, Great Lakes restoration. Uh, you have to be able to demonstrate to Congress, who have, holds the purse strings, that you can be successful. So th that's that's part of the issue. And, and these projects just take the contaminated sediment removal. They, they take a long time. Muskegon uh, Lake uh, was just uh, finally uh, cleaned up. Mm -hmm. And that was a 20-year project. So uh, the, the contamination is out of sight, out of mind. And uh, it's easy to, uh, to forget and hard to demonstrate results. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the Detroit River, uh, its current state, and the massive cleanup that is still needed to repair damage done by decades of uh, industrial waste and other things. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, do you think the Detroit River should be a higher priority in the Great Lakes cleanup efforts? Who should be paying for that cleanup? Should it be the state, federal government, or someone who uh, was responsible for making the Red River dirty in the first place. Uh, also, give us a sense of how you use and enjoy the Detroit River. Are you somebody who's down there a lot along uh, the right uh, the Riverwalk, which is now this uh, wonderful space along the Detroit River? Belle Isle always has been uh, a wonderful spot in the middle of the river. Let us know what role the river plays in your life. The role that it has played uh, for so long in this community is really central to our identity. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. 
We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in right now. We're talking about the Detroit River and the fact that it is not going to be much of a priority in the billion dollars that's being spent by the federal government cleaning up the Great Lakes. There are some kind of quirky reasons that the river is not as much of a priority as it should be, but of course it leaves us uh, wondering how we will get it cleaned up, uh, whether we will get it cleaned up, whether we can change the focus. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call. Uh, let us know about uh, your sense of the Detroit River, uh, how clean it is, how much cleaner it is maybe than it was uh, that you might remember it being once upon a time. Also, how you use the river. Uh, is it a place of relaxation or enjoyment or entertainment for you. Tell us about your spots along the river, um, the places that you go back to over and over again. we got two great guests uh, with us talking about this subject. Nick Schreck is Associate Dean of Experiential Education and Associate Professor at the Detroit Mercy School of Law. He is a, an environmental expert who joins us quite frequently here on the show. Uh, also with us is Gary Wilson, a journalist and contributor for Planet Detroit. He's based in Chicago and has been reporting on the Great Lakes and its issues uh, since 2011. Uh, as always, again, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Let's start with Fred in Farmington Hills. Fred, what's on your mind? Um, well, it occurred to me that half of the river is in another country, Canada. And are they uh, helping us in any way to clean up? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question, Fred. And, uh, of course, we do share the river with another, not just another city, Windsor, but uh, another nation. Uh, and I, th there are things that uh, they've done, of course, uh, industrial-wise, that helped uh, make the river uh, what it is right now in terms of the needs it has. Nick Shrek, what, what, what is that relationship like in terms of splitting the responsibility for cleanup uh, among the two nations? Yeah, great question. Um, so going back to 1908, we have a treaty with, with Canada called the Boundary Waters Treaty. And then that, that treaty basically, both countries agree to not pollute the waters of the other country. And from that treaty, eventually something resolved called the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. And that water quality agreement listed these contaminated areas called areas of concern all around the Great Lakes, including those that stretch international boundaries. And so so, yes, uh, the Detroit River, you know, it, it includes Windsor, it includes portions of Canadian waters. And Environment Canada, you know, has been working on doing the same kinds of restoration and um, sediment removal projects that we're talking about. Um, you know, it's, it's not one of the things that's unique about us on the Detroit side is that in addition to the Detroit River, we also have, you know, Lake St. Clair area mm -hmm. of concern, which feeds into the river. We have the Clinton River area of concern, which feeds into the river. Um, and then, of course, we have... Um, the Rouge River, right? So, so all of those, you know, feeding in um, are, are on a side, right? So we definitely have a lot of responsibility. But I just say, yeah, by international agreement and treaty, we are working collaboratively on cleaning these up. And so definitely Canada is a partner here, and they're a big part of the response. Uh, but again, we have, because of the unique nature of the industrial activity and, and the type of land use we have here in Michigan, we've got a lot of pollution that we're feeding into the Detroit River from our own you know, domestic shore. Yeah. Uh, is it possible that Canada could take a lead, I suppose, in trying to, to clean up the river? Again, it's theirs as much as it is ours. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know if Gary might have some thoughts on this, too, but, you know, like with the Gordie Howe International Bridge, Canada agreed to front the money um, right. because we had 
kind of a still on the U.S. side. And so, you know, maybe there can be some some creative thinking there. But certainly with the federal dollars coming on the U.S. side, those can be spent, um, you know, with with our territory. And, and, and again, it's a bit of a unique situation being that we have this boundary water, this border between the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, those federal dollars do need to be spent by U.S. entities on U.S. projects. And certainly I think, you know, Canada can take a more aggressive role. But, um, you know, we're, we're a bigger community, larger community on this side of the river, and we have contributed, you know, far more to that pollution uh, than our than our friends across the border. Yeah. Uh, Gary Wilson, of course, this is not the only place that we share a part of the Great Lakes with, with Canada. In fact, all of them uh, border um, uh, Canada in some way. I guess like Michigan does not. But um, But talk about that relationship between the two countries and how that plays out in the decisions about uh, about this kind of cleanup. I, th- I think, uh, Stephen, writ large, uh, the U.S. and Canada historically, when it comes to Great Lake issues, the Great Lakes issues have been on the same page, uh, as Nick pointed out, uh, just by the, the, the population and the number of cities uh, on the U.S. side uh, of, of our waterways, we bear a greater responsibility, uh, both for the cleanup and financially. Uh, but there's a there's a long uh, strong relationship between the two company countries on these water issues. Now I would be remiss if I didn't throw in the issue of uh, of the Line Five oil pipeline that traverses the Straits of Mackinac that's yeah. uh, seen as a threat. And this is an area where the two countries uh, uh, diverge. Uh, at least the state of Michigan and Canada the, uh, diverge. Uh, Michigan, led by Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nussle, uh, are adamant about shutting Line 5 down. And Canada is uh, diametrically opposed to that. And they've taken their case to the Biden administration directly, who so far has stayed neutral. So there's a there's a bit of a wedge there right now. Uh, but uh, overall, over decades, the, the two countries have uh, have worked collaboratively, as uh, Nick uh, previously pointed out. Yeah, uh, Mark Wallace, who is uh, the CEO of the Detroit River Conservancy, uh, tweets that he says, we would love to see more sediment abatement in the Detroit River. The Great Lakes uh, Restoration Initiative and the Great Lakes Legacy Act uh, have been key funding forces sources for the Riverwalk connection across the Uniroyal site and at Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park, nearing $20 million, which has been matched by the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy. Uh, That's interesting uh, information as well. Um, I want to talk about what's possible, I guess, uh, to, to, I guess, break this this logjam just in the last couple of minutes that we have left um what what are we supposed to be doing or 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 thinking might be done here nick that would uh would shake this loose and and push us in a different direction yeah i mean i think this sort of gets to to be a political question at this point right there's some money available we want to make sure that you know we're getting a good fair share of those resources here to clean up the detroit river so you know talking to our elected members of congress right letting them, them know that this is a priority talking to our senators um, letting them know that this is a priority that we, we want this federal funding coming here and then you know talking to governor whitmer right talking to the whitmer administration about you know if there are state funds available that we can make this match happen and get this work going um that's that's what needs to be done i mean there, there's money there it just needs to be allocated um, and yeah, there's priorities all around the Great Lakes. We get that, but this is, you know, a really major area of contamination that needs to be cleaned up. And, and I'll just, you know, finally say that, you know, Gary made the point about how the river looks and how it might not look that different after the sediment's removed. But remember, that contaminated sediment is what leads to, in large part, our, our fish consumption advisories, mm-hmm. right? And we have a lot of people that supplement their, the food on their family's table by fishing along the Detroit River. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, until we clean up those sediments, those health is at risk, right, from people eating that fish and eating it in large quantities. So, um, you know, it, it's it's something that needs to be addressed. And so hopefully, again, through a little bit of, you know, outreach to our elected officials, we can make the Detroit River sediment cleanup a priority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary, what what in your mind is the is the lever to pull here to, to get this going? I think the key right now, Stephen, is uh, to get the state of Michigan involved. Uh, at the conference in May, the Detroit River Conference, uh, uh, that I covered in May in Dearborn, uh, there was a 
agreement there by uh, key officials and or key key advocates and uh, observers of of the river that it's time for the state of Michigan to step in. Uh, the state could has has been reluctant to. Uh, uh, supply any funding for Detroit River cleanup uh, provides a lot of provides a lot of other services, uh, but the sentiment is now it's time for the state to step up, uh, especially since the the state is fairly flush in in in, in money. Uh, it's very difficult to to get these responsible parties uh, involved if they exist. If they do, uh, it could lead to protracted lawsuits, uh, and therefore the the, the sort of the court of last resort here is to get the state to invest. And I, I know there's some people working behind the scenes to see that happen. Yeah. Okay. Nick Shrek and Gary Wilson. Great to have you both here uh, to talk about uh, our precious river and uh, what, what should be happening to it and what, what may not happen soon. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit today. Thank you, Stephen. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to take a look at police recruiting and staffing both throughout the country and statewide, including why there is a shortage and uh, potential solutions for law enforcement and the communities they serve. We talk a lot about policing and its future here on Detroit Today. Interesting subject uh, coming up tomorrow. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.